0: Good morning and welcome to The Morning Briefing for Thursday, June 14th, 2018. I'm your host, Eric Dame. Jake Hughes is your producer. And coming up on today's show, we are going to talk to Justice for Vets. Now, this is an organization that's working to help veterans who run into trouble in the law, specifically with drugs. They try to get them into veteran drug court so that they'll receive treatment instead of jail time. JQ sat down with them to find out what they're all about, and that interview is coming up in just a little bit. And, of course, it is Thursday. That means the executive director of AMBETS, Mr. Joe Schinelli, will be joining us live in studio. He's got a whole bunch of stuff that he wants to talk to us about. He sent an email to me late last night that had a list of about 25 topics. Well, we've only got 25 minutes, so unless we do a lightning round, we might not get to all of them, but we're going to get to as many as we can course american veterans one of the amazing vso's working on behalf of their membership and veterans in general just like we are except we don't have a membership do we jake i mean if someone were a member of the morning briefing what would they get a hug i don't know maybe we we could probably design a pretty cool t-shirt yeah with like pictures of us in uh, revealing clothing. Oh yes. Yes. Let's. I think I know what we need to do now. I think I've got a pretty good idea. Of course, Jake and I are both veterans ourselves. If you've never listened to us before, thirteen years in the Navy for me, thirteen years in the Army for Jake. That's a pretty long time, I suppose. Thirty-five years is a very long time, Jake. Could you very. imagine serving for thirty-five years? Like There's no way you could made me serve that long. There are some people who do. You do have your uh your high-ranking admirals and your very, very senior enlisted who get uh, you know, pretty close to that 35 year mark. I'm speaking, though, about William Howard Hughes Jr. William Howard Hughes Jr. was an Air Force officer 35 years ago. He vanished. So I don't know, he could be like a uh, three-star general today and still be in, maybe. Probably would have retired a little while ago, but he disappeared from uh, from his duty station 35 years ago. They just found him. Now, the interesting thing about this story, which we've briefly talked about, is that he worked on um, NATO issues during the Cold War and intelligence gathering and intelligence um, uh, discussion and, and description and all sorts of stuff like that. They thought... That he had actually defected to Russia. That's why they thought they couldn't find him. They thought he was a spy or a double agent because he was working on all this Cold War stuff. You know, the Eastern Front, uh, the Iron Curtain over there in Europe. That was his area of expertise. Then he just disappears and no one finds him. And then 35 years later, he turns up outside of San Francisco, basically. So... There's an interesting story that's come out about this and I'm seeing it reported uh, all over the place including by the Associated Press. He was working in the University of California system. Oh, of course he was. Why does that not surprise me that they wouldn't do any sort of background check on somebody like this? They said that he was uh, a consultant for the University of California system. Uh, He was known as a personable, brainy number cruncher for their vast health benefits program, according to the San Francisco Chronicle. Uh, This is... It's fascinating, but that's you know that's uh, part of the argument about what's going on out in California, where I, apparently it's not okay to ever check anyone's credentials or passport. Or no, that's racist. Anything like that. Well, to check someone's credentials? My goodness, Jake. I don't know if I don't know if William Howard Hughes Jr., who has aged rather well, I've got to say. Here's how ballsy this guy was over the years, Jake. He has the same exact haircut that he had 35 <laughs> years ago. Look at the picture. It's it's gray now, but it's the same haircut. That is the exact same haircut. It's the same haircut. Looks like the same guy. Now, he did go to a beard instead of the, oof, that awful lifer mustache that he had uh. when he was in the Air Force. How are you going to have the lifer mustache and then go <laughs> and desert <laughs> That doesn't make any sense like that. You know, if you're, if you got the lifer mustache, you got to do your 20 plus years, man. Those are the rules. That's why I never had it, even though I had uh, kind of planned to go there uh, and do the 20s. So he was living under a fake name, uh, Barry O'Bearn, uh, using Timothy as a middle name. And people who worked with him are like, oh, that's so shocking. And this and that and this. Listen, he wasn't a violent criminal. He was a deserter, which is someone who's uh, not deserving of any respect. uh, Well, hopefully, um, you know, have to pay some sort of restitution or something because while he left and, you know, it wasn't uh, the end of the world, of course. And he left during uh, the Cold War, but generally a time of peace there in the early 80s. Think about all the people he worked with that this screwed with for God knows how long that didn't have their, uh, I mean, he was an officer, so didn't have their, their officer there maybe, or, uh, or, you know, people, other officers who had to take his uh, duties over and all these different things. It's, it's just, you know, uh, yeah, it was 35 years ago, but there's no statute of limitations on desertion. No the guys who deserted in uh, Korea who were living in North Korea and working as uh, basically little puppets, little propaganda puppets for the, uh, the Kim family. Those guys, uh, you know, they were still wanted for many, many years. I believe all of them are dead now, except maybe for one who the guy who actually ended up coming back to to Japan with his wife, who was kidnapped by the North Koreans from Japan, which yes, that's something that happens. You can look it up. Uh, The North Koreans had a uh, pretty regular habit of uh, running over to Japan, kidnapping people and bringing them back to North Korea. Um, They did that with people who were professionals, uh, beautiful women. They would sometimes just be like, oh, yeah, she's pretty. Let's grab her and bring her over here. Like crazy stuff that was going on back then that one uh, deserter from uh, north korea a few just maybe a decade ago actually went to japan with his wife uh, the north korean's allowed them to do that and he turned himself in to the united <laughs> states military and basically they kind of gave him uh, a little slap on the wrists like you know don't don't do that again i mean you know <laughs> he's 80 85 years old and he had been living in north korea for i don't know 50 years or something like that and it didn't sound like it was a very um very good situation over there including the fact that there was there was a group of i think it was like four or five americans that were over there and there was one guy oh, what was his name harnock or something like that one big guy who i've seen i saw interviewed in documentaries who was just a big burly brusque i don't know that's just the best way to describe him burly and brusque Uh, who was a bully towards the other guys that were there with him and made their lives miserable. So they thought they were escaping the United States military in that awful life. They go to North Korea, (laughs) questionable decision to say the least, and end up with just kind of the stereotypical big country bully guy who's still making their lives miserable, even though uh, he defected from the United States military along with them. And they did it all for different reasons. Like that guy, I can't. What was his name, man? Harnock or something like that? I'm gonna, I'm gonna see. I'm just gonna Google Harnock and see if that comes up because I keep thinking it's like Harnock or something like that. No, that's not it. Um, how about Korean War defectors? That could do it. Korean War De- ah, Dresnock. There you go. I was pretty close. James Joseph Dresnock. Um, he was one of this group that went over there, and they are, it's its just fascinating that someone would ever decide to do that. Like, can you imagine someone defecting to the Taliban? I mean, even Bo Bergdahl, for all his faults, he was just a dummy who i, I, I wasn't defecting. I think that's been pretty well established. Yeah. He was, uh, you know, a dummy. He was crazy, maybe. He had a lot of stuff going on. He ended up in the... Uh, the possession of the Taliban, but that wasn't his goal certainly you're not going to see anybody defecting to, like, the Iraqi army or to ISIS. You're just, you're (laughs) not seeing it. Well, no, Um, you
1: see, like, teenage kids in Europe. I mean, military defectors.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not talking about kids from Europe or there have been quite a few from the United States as well, particularly from the uh, the large Somali community.
1: I'm going to go defend free people against
0: the empire, man, and they get there and no. Yeah, that's, and that's, they don't even claim that that's what they're about. It has nothing to do with freedom. But anyway, the, uh, uh, you have Americans going over there too there's a large Somali population in Minnesota and they have had uh, you know a bunch of people leaving to go to Somalia to take place in the, the constant war that's been going on there for the last 30 years uh, and also over to join Isis and things like that but I'm talking about military defectors where you know you just get uh you don't see it I mean, I've seen maybe, I can remember maybe one case during the OIF, OEF era, and that was a guy who I believe was actually of Iraqi descent and didn't really defect to another side so much as just kind of like, was like, I'm just going to go out and live out in town here and you're not going to be able to get me. It was more of a, a deserter than a defector, but we had these defectors go over there, which was just shocking. That uh, someone would ever think that, hey, North Korea, that seems like a better option than what I'm doing right now. Some of them, after the war ended and North Korea was already known to be this incredibly restrictive society, with the uh, the, the Dresnak guy specifically, I believe he was facing um, some prison time under like... Uh, um, Court martial for, uh, you know, violence and drinking and dereliction of duty and stuff like that. And he said, Oh, yeah, you're going to put me in prison. I'll show you. I'll go live in a country that's a prison for the rest of my life. <laughs> and he did. He stayed there for the rest of his life and did die there and all that stuff. So, yeah, it was, uh, it, it, it was just a fascinating story. I think it was Charles, yeah, Charles Robert Jenkins. That's the one who came back to, um, Japan, and he did in fact die on December 11th of last year. So, this is a guy who, uh, uh, again, was on night patrols and crossed into North Korea and surrendered to forces there. Um, and here, here's what this guy thought, what he hoped. All right, some of them just Dresnok just wanted, didn't want to go to, uh, you know, um, Leavenworth. Basically, this Charles Jenkins guy. Not the brightest marble in the sack, I would say. Not the sharpest nail in the box. Not the roundest circle of them all.
1: Not the brightest crayon in the tool drawer?
0: No. Yeah, that's a a very good good analogy right there. So Charles Jenkins defected in um, North Korea, of course, uh, defected to North Korea. His plan was this. I will be taken captive by the North Koreans, sent to the Soviet Union, and then after being going through a prisoner exchange, go back to the United States. It's like, what? It's like, dude, what what are you what are you talking about? What are you thinking? And I don't know if he was, but his idea was I'll defect to North Korea. I think he kind of thought no one would really know that he had defected they would maybe think that he was captured and then maybe he thought he was going to be a hero but it was like this this rube goldberg machine to get out of the military (laughs) like i'll go to north korea they will trade me to the chinese who will give me to the russians and then the soviets will trade me for some soviet spy that they have over there of course that did not happen at all the interesting thing about this is he served for 10 years I was in from fifty five to sixty five, and then just just got out. I mean, he, he was a sergeant, and apparently, I don't, did he lose his mind or what happened there? It's just one of those things where uh, you really wonder. He was uh, first cavalry division, if you're wondering, and his dates of service are nineteen fifty five to sixty five, followed by a period of desertion, and then he was again in uniform in two thousand and four. So. That was nearly 40 years later, 39 years later, uh, when he turned himself in, and he had to wear the uniform and all that stuff. He had to get a haircut to conform to Army grooming regulations. And if you go to, like, the guy's Wikipedia page, you'll see a picture right there. It's him in his sergeant uniform. They got him all his decorations and everything. Like, he was was on trial there, and he went to the court-martial, and again, he just kind of like, I I don't even know what he did. He did, like, maybe a little bit of... uh, a little bit of time in jail. I can't remember. I'm trying to think and see if we can see the uh, confirmation in return. Bur, 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 bur. Yeah, I don't know. Doesn't really say. Um, but yeah, it looks like uh, it looks like just a fascinating mental issue. I think is what you come up <laughs> to it. That Dresnock guy just seemed to be pure evil. That guy just seemed to be a nutcase who loved being in North Korea because of the uh, uh, the power it afforded him over his fellow soldiers who i believe all of them or or certainly most of them outranked him in the army but over there he was the biggest guy he was the 800 pound gorilla in the room so he was just throwing that weight around and just being a negative nancy that's what he was oh yeah a negative Nancy. i apologize for using such, such harsh language. Such harsh language but he was a negative nancy so the difference, I guess, between them and Mister uh, Captain Hughes, Mister uh, Barry O'Bairn or whatever you want to call him, he didn't—he didn't defect. They thought he did. He just deserted. Again, thirty-five years after the fact, what do you think they should do to this guy? Do you think it should just be like a fine? Do you think he should go to Leavenworth or something? No, just to, because again, he wasn't—he didn't turn things over to the enemy. He didn't do anything. Well, we don't think we, we don't, don't know. We don't know everything that he was doing.
1: You know? He just left, and at this point, he's such an old man. It's like just give him a give him a fine or something and send him on his way.
0: That would be a. Uh, That would probably be how I would go about it, too. I mean, it's not worth, uh, I mean, he'd have to pay to keep him in jail or in prison. Um, If they find out that he did do any of that little uh, espionage stuff uh, during his desertion there, if they are able to figure that out. And they are investigating the guy because, again, the stuff that he was working on at the time was very sensitive very sensitive stuff. He was involved in classified planning and analysis of NATO's control command and communication surveillance systems during the Cold War and specializing in radar surveillance. So that's something that uh, the Soviets certainly would pay top dollar for. And all we know is that for decades he was working for the University of California system, uh, doing something with their healthcare records or something like that, it looks like, Um, he, we don't know what happened before that. We don't know what happened, so we're gonna have to, uh, gonna have to see. It's, uh, it's not clear if he has an attorney to comment on his behalf, according to the AP. But this, uh, this guy was at Kirtland Air Force Base, disappeared, and then they found him living in uh, the San Francisco area and working for the <laughs> University of California. Which, boy, that's, that just lines up perfectly with what some people think about Northern California yep. in particular. The jury has recommended death for a Marine Corps veteran in the murders of five California women. His name is Andrew Erdialis. And we're talking about the guy who, uh, you know, essentially was a serial killer in my eyes. I mean, when you kill that many people and it's not, I don't know, you know, the, the difference between what's a serial killer and what's not doesn't even matter. You killed a whole bunch of people. Whether it was ritualistic or not, and whether it was, you know, following some sort of pattern or not, um, this guy is someone who moved to Southern California as a 19 year old Marine and then killed four women while he was in the military and another one while vacationing in Palm Springs in 1995. Uh, so, this is a guy, I mean, it fits all of the. Uh, It fits a lot of the things that you see of serial killers, like killing, picking up a prostitute, going to a remote area where they had sex, and then he shot her in the head and left her body in the desert. So I don't know. I guess that's the serial killer thing is that there has to be some sort of followable pattern. At least three people, a pattern, a sense of ritual. Yeah. I mean, these were were all prostitutes. So there's a pattern right there. Um, It's very... uh, Boy, it's very interesting. The California murders, nobody knew who did them until he got arrested in his home state of Illinois, where it turned out that he had actually killed some women there, and I, this is just not good. In 1996, uh, authorities stopped him in Illinois, found a weapon in his truck, and then the next year it was that weapon was matched to the one used to kill the Illinois women, and they figured out all this stuff. You know, it just uh, it's kind of reminds me of that little article that I did on the uh, five most infamous veteran serial killers, because when the Golden State Killer was found and arrested, which got a lot of attention uh, for a guy that I had never heard of, it got a lot of attention because in large part, uh, the um, wife of uh, famous comedian and actor Patton Oswalt, who recently passed away, had written a book about him, uh, an investigatory book about the Golden State Killer, had her theories. Apparently this is who she thought the guy was. Um, So that, that got it a lot of news coverage. He was a Navy veteran. He was a damage controlman second class, a firefighter essentially. Then you find out he got out. He worked as a police officer. He is, in many ways, when you look at what that guy did, Kind of a prototypical, stereotypical veteran, you know, served in the military, got out, served as a first responder. There are many who are doing that 99.99999% who are doing that honorably and doing it the right way. And then you got one crazy lunatic out there like the Golden State Killer. And going through that list, you know, seeing seeing him and seeing he was a Navy veteran made the little light go off my head. Hey, how many other serial killers served in the military? And then I started looking and was like, oh, my God. A whole bunch of them. Yep, it's uh, it's kind of shocking when you look at it. When you realize that perhaps the two most famous serial killers of the last fifty years are both army veterans, that's disturbing. As
1: Dahmer and Dahmer, and,
0: uh, son of Sam. Oh, yeah, son of Sam was a uh, he was a, he was in the army, and apparently was a pretty good soldier. Of all the people on that list, he was kind of like, he was an okay soldier. And then Anthony Sowell, who was the Cleveland Strangler, um, that that one didn't get as much attention as it should, that they just found 11 women's bodies. Wasn't Da Silva
1: a veteran too?
0: Who? Da Silva.
1: I don't know who that is. Uh, I think it was the Boston Strangler.
0: Oh, I don't know. It could be. Okay, I'll, could be. We'll have to look that up. Hey, maybe there's a part two to this story. Hey, how about the next five most notorious veteran serial killers? Because this guy, Mister uh, Erdie Alles, is going to be uh, hopefully getting the death penalty there, according to uh, what the jury recommended. Uh, yeah, he's a Marine Corps veteran. Anthony Soul was a Marine Corps veteran who did like seven years and had like meritorious. Like he, he was a good Marine. He was. He just did everything he was supposed to. It looked like, got out and had uh, had. You know, as you as you look into those guys. You seem to find some connections to very, very difficult childhoods for all of them. Yep. Some of them are just born messed up, but that's kind of rare. When you have people like Jeffrey Dahmer, who was abused and molested and raised by, you know, there there was all sorts of stuff going on there. David Berkowitz. I mean, it, you can go th- down the list, and each and every one of them seems to have... Uh, some some issues dating back to childhood, that tends to be the most common thread among all of them. Uh, look at Ed Gein and the stuff that went on with him and his mother. Yep. That's the basis for the movie Psycho, if you don't know. Um, the a, a, As you go back and look at that, that's the common thread. But I got to tell you, man, after looking through the list of how many were veterans, uh, the, that veteran thread is a fairly common one in the serial killer world too, including the, uh, the Green River Killer who – I remembered hearing about the Green River Killer when he was caught, but I did not remember or realize that this may be the uh, most—he may have the highest body count of any serial killer in the history of the United States, and the reason is—I kind of figured out as I was looking through and doing the research for that article— it happened like two weeks before September 11th, 2001, that they arrested him. So his trial and everything was going on uh, essentially during during the, the height of the war in Iraq and Afghanistan and all that stuff. So it just kind of took a back seat on the, uh, on the news. Also, I was overseas for most of that time, so that probably had, uh, had something to do with why I didn't hear a lot about that. But I don't know, man. The fact that Jeffrey Dahmer was an Army medic... Does that make you wonder, like, hmm, who was giving me my flu shot? I've over known all these years? I've
1: known some seriously messed up medics in my time. Hmm. Like I I, I, not, I can't talk about it. I can't talk about it on air. <laughs> I can't
0: <laughs> There are stories like that. You know, the Corman that I served with, I made a lot of great Corman friends over the years, Facebook friends with a bunch of them still. One actually she was just up in Baltimore doing um. Uh, adaptive CrossFit with the adaptive CrossFit guys, uh, Mr. Zirkenbach that we talked to on the show a few weeks ago. She's the one who actually put me in touch with them. She was a corpsman. She's now gone to the dark side and is an officer. But many, most of the corpsmen I met, the Navy corpsmen, fantastic people. I can't think of any of them that were really, really messed up. But apparently Army medics, that's a different story, huh? Yeah. <laughs> Jake's like, yep, not talking about it. But, yeah, it's over there. Oh yeah, Steve Scalise out at the uh, the congressional baseball game. I believe is taking place uh, uh, later on, and of course, you remember a year ago. We've been on the air now for a year. I remember that morning when that happened, when the shooting at the congressional baseball game happened. That's something, again, you know, it kind of brings you back to that Green River Killer and why uh, he was also an Army veteran, I think. Because I think on our list we had like uh, I can't Army or no, he was maybe he was Navy. I think he might have been Navy. Anyway, I'd have to go back and look. You can find that story on ConnectingBets.com. Just put serial killer into the search <laughs> bar or uh, Jeffrey Dahmer or David you Berkowitz. You may end up on
1: some sort of FBI watch list.
0: Yeah, probably, you know, just for doing my job. But you know, it's kind of like the Green River Killer. There, I keep, I keep thinking more and more that he was Navy because I think it was like two sailors, two soldiers, and a marine on the list. No Air Force people that I found that were on that list, but that's okay. I'm sure. I'm sure there's an Air Force veteran serial killer out there. Someplace. I'm sure. Uh, so don't feel left out, Air Force. Um, the the interesting thing about that that shooting of of members of Congress, where you had. A veteran who was also a doctor who and uh, who saved Steve Scalise's life, essentially, that happened in Washington D.C. a year ago. Was the last time you heard about that? I can't like a couple weeks after it happened when when Steve Scalise came back. To work. That's that's I think the last time I heard anything about it. Haven't heard anything about the guy who did it. Haven't heard anything related to it. Uh, in I mean, almost since it happened. It's pretty interesting, but that's kind of how the news cycle works here on this show. Though long memory, we don't forget, and we talk to people that we like talking to and we like telling their stories, and we'll tell you about a good one coming up as Jake Hughes talks to Justice for Vets, and then later on in the show, Joe Schinelli, executive director of Amvet. It's going to be a great Thursday morning, which is my second favorite day of the week, next to Friday. Why is it my second favorite? Well, because it's next to Friday. I already said. You're listening to the morning briefing. Eric Dame, JQ's back after this.
1: Helping military veterans stay connected.
0: We make it easy.
1: We're CBS Radio's connectingvets.com. Connecting vets every day. Online and all over social media Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter at Connecting Vets. What is up, everybody? Welcome back to the Morning Briefing. Super producer, JQ's here, sitting in the driver's seat. And once again, I want to remind you, and I'm going to keep reminding you until you do it, follow us on social media. We are at ConnectingVets on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. And make sure you check out the website, ConnectingVets.com, your one-stop shop for all things veteran and military-related. Follow us on social media. You'll get all the latest and greatest happenings. You'll know just when something pops off, because we are monitoring the veteran and military community for you, because we are... The military and veteran community now we all know that among the myriad of problems that service members and veterans can face one of them unfortunately is mental health and it doesn't always get treated properly in the military and so when you get out people can have symptoms and problems that follow them and sometimes it can get them into trouble well there's a group of people that are working to make sure that doesn't happen that if you have some sort of mental issue you can get justice. It's Justice for Vets, and I'm joined by their communications director, Chris Deutsch. Chris, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, thanks so much for having me. Well, glad to have you here. So, let's start, give me a, are you a veteran yourself? I'm not. You're not, okay, so how did you get involved in veteran advocacy? So, I, um, I joined a group called the National
2: Association of Drug Court Professionals 10 years ago, and it just so happened I joined right after a court in Buffalo, New York started the very first veterans treatment court in the nation. And my boss said to me, look, Buffalo's doing something really interesting with veterans, figure out what it is, see what you can find out, let's help spread the word. And so from the very beginning, I was uh, up in Buffalo working with them to, uh, to figure out exactly um, how they were adapting the already successful treatment court model to specifically serve veterans. And what we found was that they were doing something really unique. They were creating a courtroom only for veterans where their specific needs were being addressed with the specific source uh, resources. Um, that were the right fit. And um, almost immediately it caught on like wildfire across the country.
1: Okay. So what exactly is a treatment court? Explain that. That's the most basic thing we can talk about here. What is a treatment
2: court? Yeah. So the first treatment court started in Miami-Dade in uh, 1989. And the, the idea was really simple. Too many people were cycling through the justice system with addiction or mental health issues and not getting treatment. And what would happen is they would just get out, reoffend, come right back before the judge, and the cycle would continue and continue. So in 89, a, a group got together and said, we got to put a stop to this. We need to start working together to get these folks into treatment, to, to monitor them closely, to keep them in treatment long enough to be successful. That became the first drug court. And from there, uh, other models started, started to grow. Now we're at about 3,000 treatment
1: courts nationwide. Wow. Okay. So what is... Okay, let me uh, take a back up here for a yeah. second. Okay, so Justice for Vets, you set up treatment courts for veterans. Exactly what is it you do for them? Well let me, I think a, a good way
2: to help understand this is to 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 uh, look at how the first court got started. So Judge Robert Russell in Buffalo, New York, He's a, he was a presiding judge, he had criminal court dockets, he had treatment court dockets. Around 2007, he starts to see an increasing number of veterans coming through those dockets and he's seeing that a lot of them are dealing with substance use disorders, mental health issues, most often co-occurring at the same time. So he starts to think, w- w- we're not doing enough to help these folks, what, we got to do more. At that same time, he's dealing with a Vietnam veteran in his mental health court, and this gentleman is unresponsive. He's not responding to treatment, he's not engaging with the court, he's not accepting the help. Judge Russell looks at two Vietnam vets on his court staff and says, hey, why don't you take this guy out in the hall, talk to him for a bit, you're both vets, maybe you can reach him. They talk for an hour. Judge Russell recalls the case. The gentleman stands at parade rest. Judge Russell says, are you willing to accept the help we're offering? He says, yes, sir. At that moment, Judge Russell realized there is a therapeutic component to the camaraderie that exists among the people who served. And at the same time, there are also resources and benefits specific to veterans that that, um, really need to be applied to help deal with some of these issues. Next thing we know, in two, January 2008, he starts Veterans Stream Court. He invites local VA medical center representatives to sit in on the team to provide treatment. He closes the courtroom to non-veterans, and and, and almost immediately they find that the veterans in the program are much more receptive to treatment. Um, the other th- unique thing he does is he invites local veterans in the community to be mentors. They come, they sit in court. They're there. They're battle buddies. They're not therapeutic. They're there to just offer their support vet to vet. And uh, within a few weeks of R- Judge Russell starting this program, other communities across the country start to go, wait, we're seeing the same thing. We want to do more for our vets. And so they start to adapt veteran Stream of Courts. And now, 10 years later, we're at 350 veteran Stream of Courts. We serve about 15,000 justice-involved veterans a year.
1: Wow, that's impressive. Yeah. So let's... Get down to brass tacks here. Is this a thing that's going to get veterans out of jail, out of jail time? Yeah, the idea is that look, a lot of the the uh, charges that the, some that
2: some veterans are dealing with are related to these substance use or mental health disorders, and if we can treat those issues, we can prevent these folks from reoffending. We can get them back with their families, back in the community where they really belong. This is an alternative to jail. Um, it, it, I think it's important to note, veterans are incarcerated at lower rates than non-veterans. The vast majority of veterans come home, they're they're heroes in the community. There is a percentage of them that will struggle and that will become involved in the justice system. So the question we all have to ask ourselves is, is justice best served by locking these folks away or can we do more to get them back on their feet? And um, and in veteran stream courts we see that we can in fact do more and not only is it more successful. It's more cost effective. It's really a no, uh, an everybody wins situation.
1: Okay. Let me ask you this. Uh, I don't know if you can talk about this, but can you know, what are the most common crimes that you see that like, like, is it just substance abuse or are these things related to that? Like what, what do veterans usually come in for? That's a great question. So, you know, it,
2: in some ways it can depend, you know, some of our Vietnam era veterans um, have really been struggling with these issues for a long time. Um, many of them have, you know, they've they've lost their housing. Their family is unstable. They they may be out on the streets. They have long histories of substance use. That, you know, they may be brought in on charges that are a little more specific to, um, to, a, to to an addiction. Whereas some of the younger veterans, you know, these are folks who are coming home. They're still coming to terms with their experience. They've never received treatment for some of the PTSD they may be suffering. They go to a bar. They get in a bar fight. Next thing you know, they're charged with assault serious felony could be facing jail time or they rack up three or four DWI's really quickly you know in, in a month or two um, you know it, it, typically it's gonna be offenses that um, there, there may be some violent offenses violence is a is a broad term so possessing right. a weapon for example right um, if, if there's a an, an issue with a veteran and there, there's a weapon all of a sudden that's a violent charge um, but we still think those folks should be treated in one of these courts um, you're not going to see a veteran get into Veterans Treatment Court if there's an issue with serious bodily injury or death. But when we can make that link between the the the, the crime that's been committed and the diagnosable condition, we really want to see them get this treatment. And, and it's not easy. It's not just treatment. There's a lot of supervision. There's a lot of accountability. There's a lot of structure involved um, to help get these folks back on their feet.
1: Right. Okay. And that makes a lot of sense because veterans the symptoms of PTSD can be right can there's a set there's core things that most people suffer from but they can be wide-ranging absolutely and the fact that these things don't always manifest immediately you may be fine for a year and then all of a sudden things just kind of hit you and so it's good yeah that's a great point I've seen some research that says it can take
2: up to 10 years for these issues to manifest to the point where a veteran is is becomes involved with the justice system. Ten years for you know the family struggles to, to come to a head, for a job to be lost, for the housing to become unstable, all of the drivers that ultimately contribute to someone becoming involved in the justice system. So while the progress we've made has been fantastic, we may not have seen the wave yet of veterans who really need help and, and are coming into the justice system. Um, and I think the other important point to make is we we want to make sure these folks are getting help before they get involved. I mean, right. we, we need we we want we want to be out of business. <laughs> we want every veteran <laughs> to get the treatment they need so that they don't have to need a veterans treatment court. But if they do come in contact with the justice system, we want a veterans treatment court there to make sure that they get the benefits and treatment they've earned.
1: Okay. So how does a veteran go about getting the attention of the veterans' just, justice for vets? So it,
2: typically, um, a referral to a veteran's treatment court will be made sometimes by a defense attorney. Sometimes it's a prosecutor who says, look, I'm looking at this case. It, it seems like there's an issue there. You know, Let's get them assessed and, and consider them for veteran's treatment court. These are really collaborative efforts. Most of the justice system is adversarial. Prosecutors battling it out with right. defense attorneys, the judge. The, the sort stuff of, you see on Law & Order. I see in right? Law & Order. This is a little bit different because everyone's working together and at, with treatment at the table. So if a veteran is arrested in a community that has a veteran's treatment court and it looks like they might be a candidate, they would get an assessment to determine do they indeed have a substance use disorder or a mental health disorder or have suffered some sort of trauma that that is treatable that would give them access to the court and then um, if all parties can agree. The option would be presented to the veteran. It's a voluntary program; nobody has to do it. You can proceed with your original sentencing if you'd like. Um, uh, but but most of the veterans who are presented with this option will take it.
1: All right, uh, I I was really touched by your story you told about the the two Vietnam vets that talked to the one and got him to accept the help, and that's a really beautiful story. So, say, is there a way for veterans? You know, your run-of-the-mill everyday veteran to get involved in this process is—is there a way we can help the legal professionals? Absolutely. So
2: we've started a a program uh, called our Mentor Corps, where we'll train volunteer veterans in the community to serve as mentors to veterans in Veterans Treatment Court. Uh, Folks can go to JusticeForVets.org. They can read about that. We're we're doing our best to take that on the road and to 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 bring it to veterans where they live. Um, We're also. Working on online training for 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 volunteer veteran mentors, Um, you know I think there's a lot. The the veterans community is so. I think the rest of the nation could really take a lot of cues from how veterans support one another. It's a really um, it's a really compelling dynamic that that veterans have, and 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 there really is no replacing the 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 camaraderie that exists among veterans yeah and so
1: that's something we talk about a lot is that you have that sense of brotherhood sisterhood camaraderie when you're in the service and a lot of vets don't necessarily always feel that when they get out and so being able to have them reconnect yeah sort of to that feeling of that i'm not alone can be immensely helpful absolutely and so even outside of veterans Stream Accord,
2: i think you know Looking at your fellow vets, recognizing when someone may be struggling, saying something. I mean, that goes for veterans and non-veterans alike. You see something, you say something. If someone is struggling, reach out to them, get them help. There, there are tons of resources out there um, for veterans, from not just you know from the local VA medical centers, but vet centers. Um, you know, you know, there is a lot of resources out there, and so you know, if you see someone struggling, reach out to them. You, you might be surprised how um, impactful that might be.
1: Okay. Now, let's uh, shift gears here a little bit. I understand you were recently in my hometown of Houston. That's right. You can tell I'm wearing the Astros hat. (laughs) Absolutely. So, uh, you were at a conference. Explain to us what this conference was. So, our organization
2: annually hosts a conference uh, for treatment core professionals. This year was the biggest we've ever had. We had 6,000 people who work in the justice system and in treatment come together for four days where they're learning best practices their their evidence based practices. They're brushing up on on how best to deliver these services. As part of that, we had Vet Court Con, which was the largest Veterans Treatment Court conference ever assembled.
1: I love uh, how you named it too. It's like like Comic Con. Exactly, you know, that con. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah.
2: Well, and it you know it, it's a real uh, aside from being there to learn from one another. It's a fun atmosphere. You know, these are folks who ha- are dedicating their professional lives to helping veterans, to helping one another, and so we got them all together for four days, and and it was really a magical um, experience. I mean, I think it's easy to. It's easy to get frustrated with the things we read about the justice system today and some of the problems that we all know exist within the justice system, but it's also important to recognize there are some bright spots and veterans treatment courts and really all treatment courts are the bright spots. The, these are the places where judges, prosecutors, defense attorneys, case managers, clinicians, probation officers, law enforcement, treatment providers are working together to get people help. and so. We, we uh we had a great time in houston uh it was unbelievably hot yeah uh, mm-hmm. uh, it was and, humid uh, too wasn't it it was humid yep. and um and and you know i think we sent folks home to their communities really inspired to continue doing this uh this work we also trained 90 volunteer veterans to be mentors back home in their communities wow yeah
1: all right so what are some of the things that you you because when I hear a convention like we mentioned, this kind of name like Comic Con and stuff, mm-hmm. I'm picturing different panels where they talk about different subjects. What sort of, for lack of a better term, events did you have down at this conference?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. So we had 300 individual sessions. So wow. Yeah, I mean it's it's covering everything from uh, um, medication assisted treatment to incentives and sanctions. We, you know, for the vet veteran stream of courts we have military culture for you know a lot of times it's a judge who maybe didn't serve wants to be involved in a veteran stream of court but really needs to understand military and veteran culture so we we had classes on that we had classes on how to work with the VA how to navigate benefits um, you know really trying to cover all our bases so that folks are armed with knowledge
1: uh, on how to do this okay wow that's uh it's a lot of impressive stuff I'm sorry you just you just said immerse them in veteran culture and all I can think of is telling them to swear and use Copenhagen <laughs>
2: well it's so funny because the the uh, the veterans I have a lot more fun when I'm at the veterans treatment court sessions and I'm checking in on the mentor boot camp because it's a little looser with the language uh, folks are a little more uh, folks are having fun with one another you know you go to some of the other ones and it's
1: a little more buttoned
2: up, yeah. but the vets are always—they're yeah. always so great.
1: Because that's you know, and I've had to explain to people that's just part of vet. You know, like I've met my friends, my veteran friends, and we greet each other with these horrible expletives. <laughs> yeah, you know the things that I would you would normally. We're, we're, say for your worst enemy and people go, why would you talk to your friends like that? And It's just kind of how we talk. It's our culture. You have to, because when you're, you know, in the military, you have to develop that kind of thick skin to be able to deal with some of this stuff. So the little bit of name calling and ribbing sort of really feeds into that.
2: Yeah. Well, and that really speaks to that idea of the, of sort of, um, therapeutic camaraderie that, that, uh, you know, in some ways that type of greeting can put a veteran at ease, When a very formalized, you know, hi, I'm the county prosecutor, you know, nice to meet you, maybe puts them on the defensive. But another veteran can just break down those walls almost immediately and really create an environment where, uh, where where a veteran is willing to accept help.
1: Yeah. Do you see that a lot? Do you see... Uh, you mentioned the story about the Vietnam veteran. Do you see that a lot where a veteran will be reticent to accept help or admit he has a problem until he talks with other veterans? We do. We see that a lot.
2: We've also seen that that veterans who are in a, a traditional treatment court sometimes don't feel as comfortable. They're, and it, when they get into a veteran's treatment court where everyone on the docket is a vet, the mentors are there in the courtroom, many of the court staff are veterans, they suddenly feel... Like they're in a place where they can admit that they maybe they're struggling a bit and accept the help that's being offered. Um, it, w- we see that a lot, and, and I think that's why it's just so important um, that that we have these these places in the justice system where um, where veterans are able to be surrounded by other veterans.
1: Right, and I find that fascinating because you usually, because again, my time in the military, my first six years, I was combat arms. I was mm-hmm. a tanker. And so I know, especially in MOSs and jobs like tanker, infantryman, uh, mortars, or whatever, you see a lot of, how am I trying to put this exactly? A lot of where the presiding attitude is suck it up and drive on. We mm-hmm. have a mission to complete. But when you, once you get out, that dynamic sort of shifts and where it's like, yeah, dude, it's okay to accept help. You can go to sick call. You can yeah. admit that you have something wrong with you. Yeah, I think I think that's one of the real challenges we have is
2: is breaking down. Maybe it's not breaking down, but breaking through that warrior mentality um, where it's okay to accept help and it's okay to to say, you know what, I am struggling. Things aren't okay at home. Um, I I need I need some sort of treatment, or I need help, or I need support. Um, and and I think the more, I mean, one of the reasons I'm so appreciative to come here and 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 talk to you. Is because I think the more we can get that message out that that it's okay, there were resources out there, you're not alone in in these struggles, um, the more we break down those barriers.
1: Right. Now, kind of what we were talking about is uh, you mentioned the mentors, kind of some, I'm seeing something on the email called veteran Veterans Mentor Boot Camp. Right. Exactly what is that? Because y- it I'm sorry. I used to be a drill sergeant, so if you put try to put a veteran through boot camp again, he's most likely going <laughs> to greet you with some expletives. We'll say. Exactly. So, what exactly is that program? Yeah,
2: yeah. It's a, it's a little bit of a kitschy name, but um, but but that's our that's our training for veterans to be mentors in the community. So as p- part of our what we did at our conference is we held, it's a two day training, all day long, veterans all in a room together, really learning um, beyond just. The regular support that a veteran would provide any other veteran any other day to really navigate some of the boundaries that that might need to be in place, given that this is a court and there's clinical issues involved. Um, so, so it's really to 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 arm those veterans who are going to be mentors with um, w- with with the training they would need to to be um, of the most service to the veterans in the veterans treatment court.
1: Okay. Um. Let me ask you this, and it's, it's a bit of a intangible, but it's something I'm always curious about when I interview people, especially when I interview people who aren't veterans mm-hmm. themselves or don't have that military connection. What is it that made you want to help veterans? I mean, I know you said your boss told you to do it, told you to figure it out, but what is it personally that you think that brought you to this, you know, justice for vets? I think that's a
2: great question, and and it's one that comes up a lot actually, because a lot of the folks working in Veterans Stream Accord are non-veterans. I think for me, I, I think it was two things. One is that, you know, I, I, I didn't serve, and so because I didn't serve, I didn't raise my hand and and sign on the dotted line and serve. I think I have an obligation to be there for the men and women who did, and I I. The more I started to learn about the justice system and and veterans involved in the justice system, I became really uncomfortable with the idea that these folks would go into harm's way to protect this nation, come home and struggle with the after effects of that experience and wind up behind bars. I just couldn't, I can't live with that. Um, And and I feel like because I didn't serve, I have an obligation to do everything I can um, to help these folks. I also, because I had had a background with the justice system, am aware of where the system is broken, (laughs) and for people with substance use and mental health disorders, in a lot of places the system is broken, and this is an opportunity to fix that. Um, You know, you look at—I've met so many veterans who have gone through these programs. You know, guys who are facing ten years, fifteen years in prison, who are now back with their families. They're reunited with their kids. They're of service to their community. These are people who do not belong behind bars. They are assets to the community. We need them out in the community. We are a bit stronger nation with our veterans in our communities. Um, and so uh, for me, it, it didn't take very long for me to realize this was something I had to be involved with. And, I'm, and frankly, I'm grateful that I've had the opportunity to be involved for as long as I have.
1: Yeah, I have a friend back in Houston that uh, he's involved in veteran affairs and stuff like that, and he's often told me the way he puts it is, you raised your hand so I didn't have to, Mm -hmm. and now I owe you something. Absolutely. It's like that sort of profound way that hit me, but you know. I understand that and that it's, I mean, like you said, veterans are a resource they can do great things in the community, but sometimes they need help. Yeah. Now, one thing I want to ask you, we're running this a little short on time, is this, what do you say to people that think this is just being soft on crime, that all this is, is just a way of getting junkies out of jail? Yeah. What do you say to that?
2: Well, I think there's a couple ways to respond. Uh, the first would be, um, I would ask them if they think the current system is working because you cannot look at the statistics. And argue that it, what we're currently doing works. Uh, about eighty percent of the people in the justice system are dealing with some sort of substance use or mental health disorder. About eighty percent of them will reoffend when they get out. That is a fact. So that becomes uh, law enforcement resources, court resources, taxpayer money to go out and deal with those re- those repeat offenses. This is just a much, on a very practical level, a much more effective, cost effective. Way of doing justice. Now, that's the practical answer. Then you can go back to what we were just talking about the fact that perhaps we should examine our obligation to make sure that veterans have the help that they need. And, um, you know, it's not often that the right thing to do is also the most effective thing to do, (laughs) but this is one of them. Uh, And so, you know, I I think we do tend to hear that from time to time from folks. Usually, it's people who don't fully understand what this is about, and once they get to experience it, see it, learn a little bit more, they come around. Um, the the other thing I'd add is that this is not a get out of jail free. It's not easy. It's not easy to confront your demons. It's not easy to accept treatment. It's not easy to treat an addiction. Um, these these folks are. We ask a lot of these folks when they're in these programs, and typically they're in there for a year, sometimes two years, sometimes three years. Um, That's how long it takes. So, um, so I think when the more people can learn about veteran civil courts, uh, the more they understand that this is absolutely, um, the best way we can, we can be doing justice in this country. Okay.
1: So if people want to learn more about justice for vets, where do they go?
2: They go to justiceforvets.org. They can read all about the programs. They can, uh, see, uh, more about the veteran mentor program. They can even donate if they
1: sh- should like. Okay. Chris Deutsch from justice for vets. Thank you so much for being on the show, man. Thanks for having me. And thanks for everything you guys do. All right. You're listening to the morning briefing. We shall return right after this.
0: Welcome back to The Morning Briefing, Thursday edition, June 14th, 2018. I'm your host, Eric Dame. Jake Hughes is your producer and ConnectingVets.com is your website, created by veterans, for veterans, and focusing on the veteran experience. Each and every member of our team knows what it's like to have worn the uniform and knows what it's like to have taken it off for the last time, the difficulties, the struggles, the questions you might have about becoming a veteran, and then how to best be a veteran, how to take advantage of all the things that are offered to you to make sure that you are living your best life and primed for success. That's what ConnectingVets.com is all about. Enter comms, ConnectingVets.com. Connecting Vets every day, both through our website and on social media, where we are at Connecting Vets on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Our next guest is a veteran of the United States Marine Corps. He is also the executive director of AMVETS, American Veterans, Mr. Joe Schinelli. Joe, welcome back to the show. How are you doing today?
3: Never better, Eric. You Good always morning.
0: say that, so I just assume that it's better than last week, right?
3: You got it. Every day is a little bit better.
0: Every day, it's a getting older, going faster than a roller coaster. I think that was Roy Orbison or somebody saying that. Not Wise words.
3: Yeah, of course.
0: Wise words <laughs> from a man who I'm still not sure was he blind? Roy Orbison, or did he just like the sunglasses? Yeah,
3: I, mean, I think the sunglasses were. <laughs> I'm not 100% <laughs> fashion sure statement
0: about that. So, of course, every Thursday Joe joins us to talk about what Amvets is focusing on, because what Amvets is focusing on, and right, basically the items that mean a lot to veterans, that they can help veterans, and that are of interest to veterans. And one of them, well, Flag Day. Oh Joe, Flag Day is a big one And of course we talked to you uh, A couple weeks ago about an issue that you had Concerns about relating to Flag Day where Up in your home state of New York uh, Really upstate New York, so as I call it Southern Ontario, you Guys had some issues with uh, post office Telling veterans groups that they could no longer uh, Give out the the buddy Poppies uh, because, you know, people Sometimes make donations and That's begging for money according to those post Offices. Flag Day was another one That you, uh, that you particularly We're concerned about that coming up with the post office issue. But overall, Flag Day is a big day for AMVETS,
3: isn't it? Absolutely. We have a a lot of patriotic programs, and the uh, Flag Day is something that all of our posts celebrate, and it's a way that they're really able to get into their communities on this day. Um, They give out thousands of flags, replace thousands of flags all over the country, at schools, at government buildings, at uh, businesses, they recognize a lot of businesses, business owners all over the country for displaying the flag properly. Um, they do a lot of educating to make sure that people know how to properly care for the flag. And then, of course, they uh, help um, get rid of flags that are, are worn and not serviceable anymore in the, in the proper way. So uh, really from uh, cradle to grave with the flags, AMVETS is all, all over that. So this is a very big day for us. and. You know, Americanism program is one of our, our, our key components that our organization takes a lot of pride in. And it's something that is, of
0: course, a holiday that I don't know if people know a lot of the history about Flag Day. I imagine that AMVETS does. So Flag Day, the, what is the importance of it? What is the meaning of Flag Day besides, hey, we love the flag, or is it really just that?
3: So it's actually the flag's birthday. So um, 241 years ago uh, today, um, the Continental Congress adopted um, our flag for the first time uh, with 13 stars at that point. And, you know, each of the colors and the stripes and stars, I think most of your listeners have a pretty good idea what that all means. Right. Um, but unfortunately, a lot of people outside of the military community really don't uh, understand that. And so that, that's something that we really take upon ourselves to help. Uh, and we start with the nation's youth. We're in the schools. We actually have a lot of presentations we'll be giving in schools today uh, that happens really year round cause there's also a lot of schools that are out for the summer um but we work with the boy scouts the girl scouts um, all over to make sure that people understand what, what that flag represents you, you know um with the police stand stuff that happened earlier this year and you know we talked a lot about patriotism about the proper way to yeah. respect the flag and the national anthem Uh, One thing I hear a lot is, "Well, I fought for that flag," or you know, "I was in the military for that flag." I I just disagree with that, but I do believe that the flag, because I I didn't fight for a inanimate object. I I fought for, you know, for the people of this country and the freedoms I really. And this flag represents that, and so that's something that's you know very important to us.
0: Right, symbols have meanings, and for those who uh, who disagree with that, and I, I, I. when I was in college, I heard this from some college kids, and what I would kind of say to them is, uh, do you have any relatives that are buried in a cemetery? And say, yeah. I said, okay, if I show up and just kick over that headstone, or if I spit on it, or if I do something like that, uh, how would you feel about that? Why well, be angry? All right. Well, there you go. So think about it in a similar way. Symbols have meaning to people. That's why they're symbols. Otherwise, no one would care. But people do because it has a meaning. And that's the meaning of the flag. Uh, it's different to everybody. And I, I understand exactly what you're saying, where, you know, you didn't fight for a flag. And that's kind of silly. But for the ideals that the flag represents, that's really what it's all about. And that's something that, you know, a lot of people um, these days seem to not agree with, don't care about. There's... And we saw on college campuses a few years ago where there were uh, people using the flag as their protest, where they would walk on it, one of them using it uh, in a pretty disgusting way in the bathroom. I remember that one. Uh, She uh, did not uh, (laughs) did not end up doing so great from doing that. People didn't care for that on either side. But, uh, you know, do you think this is an opportunity to kind of shine a light and make sure people do understand exactly what that flag is is standing for what it does stand for yeah
3: you're absolutely right and it's very important that you know we have this one day because we're kind of a nation that needs to have a a day to set aside for this or that before our, our media and the large scale really talks about it yeah. um and so this has been a great opportunity for us so we have a, a lot of uh messaging going out through national media today and uh hopefully uh, a lot of americans will have a better understanding of why our flag is important by the end of the day
0: It's also a holiday that's celebrated in countries around the world. So for anyone out there who's like, oh, it's jingoistic, fake patriotism, Flag Day garbage. All right. Well, guess what? Flag Day is also celebrated in uh, Venezuela, Vietnam, the United Kingdom, Turkmenistan. I mean, you can go down the list. There are many countries who celebrate their flags. Um only seems to be one country where there's a, a lar- fairly uh, large subsection of people who seem to think that it's a bad thing. That the flag is a bad thing. Most of those other countries seem to think their flags a pretty darn cool thing. And I think most people in our country do think that, but there's a, uh, there's a, A very loud group out there, a very loud small group, I would say, uh, throwing their thoughts on it, but I love that flag. I like what it looks like, and I have it tattooed on my right arm, as a matter of fact, so there you go. Um, There are, of course, other things going on today, including the Veterans Creed being unveiled. So what is the Veterans Creed? I know the Sailor's Creed, although don't ask me to recite it because I definitely can't, but what is the Veterans Creed?
3: Sure, so this is actually something that's just being rolled out today. Uh, Twelve organizations, including AMVETS, have been working on this for a while, since uh, last fall. Um, Actually, uh, General George Casey, um, former Army Chief of Staff, had came up with this idea. The bottom line is we all have a a shared uh, set of virtues, if you will, and uh, a mindset and uh, something that really brings us together. And so we wanted to kind of create something that – can remind non-veterans, or or inform non-veterans, and remind veterans of of what we're all about and what what bonds us together. And so we came up with uh, eight lines in in the veterans' creed, and uh, we're actually gonna roll it out at one o'clock here in Washington today, um, right next to uh, the Supreme Court, across from the Senate. Um, And we'll we'll talk about that there, and we have a press event with all these organizations and excited about it. And I, I think it'll be interesting. I look forward to seeing how it's received. I do have the creed with me and I could read it for you if you'd like, yeah. and we're not, it doesn't get its world premiere till one yeah. o'clock but it can get its connecting vets premiere <laughs> That's right quite now. all right, yeah. So this is eight lines. I am an American veteran. I proudly served my country. I live the values I learned in the military. I continue to serve my community, my country and my fellow veterans. I maintain my physical and mental discipline. I continue to lead and improve. I make a difference. I honor and remember my fallen comrades. There you go. Simple and I think really direct to the point. And yeah. any one of those points can stand on their own as well.
0: And there's nothing uh, extraneous thrown in there. There's nothing political about it. You it's just it. kind of a uh, you know, general thing. Now, there are some people out there. I can already hear <laughs> them. In fact, I've seen some of them post about this when they heard about
3: it. Like, it's stupid. What do we need that for? What does that do? What do, we, what do you say to those people? I don't know that we necessarily need it. I, I think there's going to be value in it, though. And it's something that, again, we can bond together on. And I, you know, AMVET's a very inclusive organization. We're open to everybody. And we, uh, that includes our, it uh, gives us a very wide variety of people. We have a 17 year old post commander in Tennessee. And I've got a 104 year old department service officer in Georgia. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the full wide, very wide, uh, range of generational uh you know, generational values and things like that too right. and they both have seen this and they can both relate to this and this is something that despite having 80 years between the two of them you know they both see this the same way mm. and I, I think bringing that together bridging those generational gaps by the, this one common set of, of principles here is valuable i i don't think that there's any reason for anyone to be negative about
0: something that's generally positive. And even if you don't think that it's necessary, again, what harm is it doing? If if you think it's doing nothing. At all, then it's not doing anything bad. So, uh, shut up. <laughs> yeah, that's that's
3: what what I, I, I look forward to seeing how it's received uh, yeah. as it goes national.
0: You know, I that's the thing, how things are received these days. We were just talking about this off air. You never know how something's going to be received, and there's always going to be someone out there who's going to get up on their soapbox and I don't think we should have a veteran's creed because veterans shouldn't need a creed to know what that's kind of irritating. But when it comes to uh, the level of like a VSO with so many members and things like that. And, uh, and, you know, you'll have members who probably feel that way, members of AMVETS who have that sort of opinion. Does that ever get um, discouraging to you when you're working on things like this that may not be the big piece of
3: legislation?
0: It may not change or save lives, but it's something that, that you and the
3: the folks at AMVETS believe in. No, I don't get discouraged. I, I think it's, I hate to say it, but you can go all the way back to you're talking about people who are, you know, uh, disrespecting the flag—they're just expressing their their freedoms of expression, and that's what makes this country great. That everyone is allowed to have their own opinion, and even if something as uh, simple as Veterans' Creed, which I think would be hard to disagree with any one of those points, yeah, you know. But if if someone did want to disagree with the entire thing, that's their right, and that's it's, it's to be expected at this point, and it just reminds us all of what kind of great country we live in.
0: Yeah, it does. That in some places does. Uh, ironically, sometimes places that are uh, put forth as examples of what we should be more like, uh, you could be thrown in jail for saying something like this. This veterans creed in, I don't know, let's say Venezuela, for example. This Venezuelan veterans creed is garbage. Oh, is it? Well, you can tell everybody else in prison what you think about that. I mean, there are plenty of places like that around the world. Here, you have the ability to... Say what you want about what you want, and everybody's going to let you. Doesn't mean we have to agree with you, though. And that's one of the things that AmVets has been, uh, you know, involved in on several in several ways <laughs> in recent months, including the Please Stand issue and here with the Veterans Creed, where it's not just you; it's several veterans organizations. Who are some of the other organizations
3: that are involved in this? Just sure, so there's twelve organizations, so we have uh, several of your regular guests. You know, the um, VFW, DAV, Amer- American Legion, uh, Vietnam Veterans. Um, Military Order of um, Purple Heart Um, we have the Reserve Officers Association pretty much all of the big organizations have come together and this is something that we can all agree on that there's value in this.
0: Yeah and certainly that's uh, you know what we're looking for in the veteran community is value and success. There are many things that we're looking at. I just got a text message of apparently they're chopping up the sidewalk in front of my house. So the babysitter I had to drive my son to school because my wife's out of town. Her car is covered in like the dust from that. Would have been nice for them to tell us that they were going to do that. So. Gotta do that on Flag Day. Yeah, I guess I don't know. They're doing all sorts of things over there. The Army's birthday as well. I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on in recent (laughs) days and coming days. What do you think about when you think about the Army's birthday?
3: So that's, uh, it was two years before the flag's birthday. Uh, So 1775, uh, I think 243 years ago today, the Continental uh, Army was created. There had been several regional armies. um, but They decided to create 10 companies. I find it very interesting. One captain, uh, I think three lieutenants, six sergeants. And uh, one drummer, <laughs> uh, a whole lot different than uh, what we have now. A little bit, um, but they brought together these regional armies. And um, there's actually a, it's hard to find good documentation on our on our oldest branch of the service because it was a, would have been considered treason at that point, point. Yeah. and they were really creating a, a unified militia to overthrow the government. Uh, but so it's a really try to uh, imagine what was going through those minds and uh, you know, General uh, George Washington was a, a key part of that and mm. obviously uh, uh, where our nation was born so uh, very interesting to think about and the courage that they had just to simply stand up the army let alone to actually fight the british
0: and of course, the Army is the oldest of the branches. There's the old argument between the Navy and the Marine Corps of who came first, and I know what Joe Schinelli's gonna say on who came first, but I just know where the
3: which flag goes to the left. And that's yeah, the. that's fine. you know what
0: <laughs> all the you know what Marines were they were basically just uh bouncers and security guards for ships. We know that that's what the Marines started as. They've evolved since then
2: um, but uh, fought you know. the
0: pirates yeah fought the Barbary pirates and all that <laughs> stuff, you know from the of Montezuma to the shores of Tripoli, all those good places, but uh, the Army outdates everybody, and there is so much tradition in the Army that I'm, I'm lucky, compared to most sailors, uh, just because of the job that I did and working for AFN in Europe and uh, working for Army commands everywhere from Italy to Afghanistan, uh, getting to see a lot of that history. There's really... Each unit, even, has its own history, has its own uh, you know, unit insignia and all that stuff. It's something that, I'll be honest, uh, and this is one of the only times I'm ever going to admit this, I was sometimes a little bit jealous of in the Navy. I mean, yeah, we had ships and all that stuff, but then when you go to a base, it's like, oh, yeah, Naval Air Station, Sigonella. what's the history of that? I don't know. Who's there? I don't know. It's just like an air base or whatever, whereas the Army— You've got guys who have special uniforms because they're in a special unit and all sorts of cool stuff. And it's one of those things that really makes you appreciate what the army came from and where it is today. You know, I mean, how do you, how do you look at the army as a marine? You guys have your traditions, certainly. There's nobody wearing special uniforms though, because that would be a very anti-marine thing to do. <laughs> no, nobody except for the nobody except for the drill instructors are wearing special hats. Even so, uh, how do you view the army as a marine? Let's be honest, Joe.
3: So and, you know, you and I have uh, went to a, you know our uh, MOS school together, yep, and Fort Meade. So, which was a joint school. And so I was able to get to see each of the different branches. And I obviously have a ton of respect for each one of the branches. But One of the things I kind of saw as a difference was the Army, as you said, takes a lot of pride in their individual unit. Mm. And they'll wear a unit patch. Yes, they and, do. And whether it's 101st or whatever it is, something like that, where you talked about the Navy, Navy often wears the hat whatever ship and then the Marine Corps we just wear Marine Corps and there's some pride of course in units and things like that but yeah typically it's that's that's where where that hat is that you're wearing if, yeah. if you go find a 60 year old veteran you're more likely to find a, an army veteran a soldier to uh, be have a lot of pride in the particular unit he or she was uh, assigned to and I think that goes back to what you're saying because of the history in those units you know, ships get retired and things like that. Oh, yeah.
0: Ships do not last forever, except for the uh, Constitution, which is still on the active <laughs> rolls for the Navy. That one's been around forever. But other than that, you know, ships, I, I my first ship of the two that I was on has already been decommissioned. It, I was there for its 25th anniversary in two thousand two thousand. 2000. 2000? I think, 2001, something like that. Anyway, I was there. No, 2002 it would have been. Yeah, so 2002, like four years later, it was decommissioned. So 29 years is the lifespan of this command, and it's gone forever. And, you know, yeah, you have the World War II guys who I think have – um more of a connection to their ship, the battleship. Some guys still in the Navy, depending on what your job was and all that. But, you know, individual units, we just don't have that, with the exception, of course, of like Swick and EOD and the SEAL teams and stuff like that. But, yeah, I, I agree with you there that the armies uh, focus on that history and tradition of the individual unit, as well as, of course, the army in general uh, is is a good thing it's a wonderful thing and of course they're the largest branch there are more people serving in the army than in any other of the branches uh, by a substantial margin actually so you know Maybe that gives them more of an opportunity to have that individualism, but yeah, I always kind of, I uh, was always a little bit jealous of that when I'd see somebody who was in a, you know, cavalry unit. They're not riding horses anymore. I mean, occasionally for show, they still get those cool covers though, and it, it just the army. I, I like how they do those things. So that is one of the nicest things I will ever say about the army, especially after certain mountain division that may have the number ten in it kept trying to mess with us over in Afghanistan and Little Fort Drum. Worse well, we were in <laughs> Afghanistan and they were the senior unit. And of course, they weren't that bad to us. But there were certain people there who wanted control of these know five six sailors that were working there and they did not have control of us we didn't work for them the only thing that they had control of is where we slept so they basically put us as far as they could away from where we worked so that we had like an extra long walk so (laughs) ah we still love you 10th mountain and of course everybody in the army who has ever served and is serving now happy birthday to you and then we're not going to sing the whole song (laughs) Senator Joe Manchin, it looks like, had been considered by the Trump administration to head the VA. Do you have any news on him?
3: This is a really interesting story. We did hear about this as it was taking place, but uh, shortly after Admiral Ronnie Jackson, uh, the the scandal kind of came out, uh, some of the allegations against him, um, the the Trump administration pretty quickly began saying, okay, if this guy gets bounced out, uh, who are we going to put up next? And so what really makes this interesting is Senator Joe Manchin out of West Virginia is a Democrat and he actually was a very supportive of the Clinton campaign um, but he is a, a moderate for sure. Uh, he's very good for veterans by the way um, but what's interesting here is that he had been actively uh, vetted and although there was no formal uh, formal offer of the position it, it there's there's uh, a Absolutely. he was he was considered here right. um, and then I actually had spoke with him he called me from his car and we we talked about um, secretary Wilkie and or I'm sorry uh the uh, nominee for the secretary position he was acting secretary Wilkie um it was very interesting and then what we've been what we've been told now is that the Trump administration really would like to get Joe Manchin out of his Senate seat because he's up for re-election mm. in a state that, went by 42 points to Trump in the presidential election. Yeesh. And so there was a lot of talk that you know, Manchin, he's the only guy out there who could retain that seat for the Democrats. And so uh, apparently Joe Manchin had looked at the polls and he looked at the polls and he finally saw some polls that gave him some hope of retaining his <laughs> seat. And of course, uh, you're going to get paid better and you have a lot longer <laughs> uh, of a job if you get reelected to the Senate rather than becoming a secretary. Um, but probably one of the more depressing parts of all this was Joe Manchin had expressed um, he did to me as well that he sees the secretary position as something that might not be able to succeed no matter who's in the position and that's something we all we all see and uh, we'll probably need some reform on how the secretary position is handled Uh, I don't think it's something that should be switched out yearly or even a couple years if you have a CEO of a company if you, you take a company that has 200 billion dollars in budget you're not going to change the ceo out every year or two and expect to have success no uh, so i i could see uh the senator's uh point of view on there but i think it's very interesting and uh a lot of uh, a lot of waves shock waves went through uh, the town yesterday when this came out
0: we're speaking with joe chinelli marine corps veteran executive director of amvets aka american veterans Joe, we've only got a couple of minutes left, so I want to get to this. TRICARE reform, they could have a big impact on people, is apparently coming. So what can you tell us about this reform, and who's it going to affect
3: directly? So it will affect, if if passed, and we're going to try to fight against this, but this is a, a tough one, uh, military retirees who are under the age of 65. So, you know, we all talk about, well, if I just do 20 years, 30 years, I'll be able to retire. Well, they want to jack up the prices on the health care insurance on TRICARE, uh, considerably TRICARE Select. Uh, they want to create a enrollment fee, an annual enrollment fee, which does not exist right now, and it'd be $450 for a single person, $900 a year for a family, mm. and uh, really big co-pays, which are um, very troubling as well, um, and putting a a cap, or a deductible. Uh, so on top of that enrollment fee, you'd also be spending a, a, about that again, on deductibles before wow. they would actually start paying. So, we're talking about a family paying close to $2,000 a year for their health care. Um, now, to be fair, some of this is comparable to if you have insurance through a civilian employer, um, but the enrollment fees don't happen for one. So, we're already talking about a grand more there for a family. Um, this is the, the, uh, the Senate is, is going to be voting on this here soon. Um, they say that this creates a uh, more level ground uh, for on the civilian side, which we just think is ridiculous. And it's this is the benefit that we were promised. And you know, it's something. I'm not a retiree; I have no personal skin in this. But a lot of our our members do, and it's something that can't go forward. But right now, it's very much looking like it will. So we'll be fighting it, and I'm sure we'll uh, be talking with you again because we're going to need some grassroots support on this.
0: We've been speaking with Joe Shinelli, Executive Director of AMVETS. Joe, if people want to find out more about your organization and all the great work you're doing on behalf of not just your membership, but veterans in general, where can they go to do so? Yeah,
3: please check us out at amvets.org or anywhere on any of the social media platforms at AMVETS HQ.
0: You've been listening to The Morning Briefing, Thursday edition. We'll be back tomorrow with our Friday edition, and then Saturday and Sunday come after that. I don't need to explain how the week works to you. Have a great rest of your day. We'll see you tomorrow.